It's Easter Sunday, at least for some of us, but that doesn't stop the podcast train from rolling. It's also the last day of my vacation, which I'll be honest, is a little sad. But to cheer me up, we've got a review of a device that comes straight to us from the future. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Hello and welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I am your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we have our full review of the Lenovo ThinkPad X1 Fold. I have been salivating over this laptop for a couple of months, and now I'm ready to tell you all about it. Plus, we've got a couple of late entries into the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra case roundup, and these come to us from Poetic, so lucky them, they get their own segment. And we'll get to all of that, but first, we have to get to the news of the week. The fine folks at Boston Dynamics are at it again, this time with a box sorting robot called Stretch. Indeed, this robot is not as sexy as the other ones. It's basically a rolling platform with a giant suction cup on one end that can grab boxes and move them around. It's designed for the warehouse space and to save the backs of workers from having to sort or move boxes from one place to another. It's my understanding that this happens a lot in warehouses. Who knew? The design is quite simple. It sucks up a box either from the side or from the top, and it drives where it needs to go. The only thing I noticed was the design of the robot seems to rely very heavily on the sturdiness of the boxes that it's moving. I mean, when you think about it, the robot is grabbing boxes from the side panel and moving them around. What happens if what's in the box is too heavy and just busts out of the box? Like, you know, refrigerators or something. Clearly, this robot is not designed to move large, heavy things in boxes, so its potential is limited in that capacity. I just wonder if this robot would open up a logistic can of worms by having you first sort out the boxes that are sturdy enough for a stretch and those that are not, and then the robot can get to its work. But if that's the case, why do you need the robot in the first place? Something to think about. T-Mobile and Google announced a pretty big partnership this week. T-Mobile will be pushing Google's suite of services, including Google Messages with RCS, and dropping its own TV services in favor of YouTube TV, which we're going to talk about in the next story. T-Mobile is also agreeing to push Google One as a default backup service for your phone. So it's pretty cool. Another big part of a deal is T-Mobile agreeing to push Google Pixel phones in its stores. This means that two national carriers, including Verizon, will start actively selling Google's phone, which Google seems not very interested in selling itself. According to T-Mobile, it has the most Android customers on all three carriers, which is quite a claim, but at least in my family, two-thirds of our lines are Android. So, you know... Small sample size, but still. We'll see how this partnership ultimately helps Google or T-Mobile, but as a customer of both, of course, I'm on board. And on the heels of that announcement came the revelation that T-Mobile was abandoning its live TV service, deferring instead to YouTube TV and Philo. Just five months ago, T-Mobile announced that it would be disrupting the TV industry, just like it had with cellular service. Then it found out that broadcast TV is hard and that live sports were all but impossible to penetrate. T-Mobile is not the first to try something like this and certainly not the first to fail. As I said five months ago, T-Mobile had an opportunity to really disrupt the TV industry by offering what people have wanted for years, a la carte TV. 
Instead, T-Mobile put together packages, which weren't all that much cheaper than just paying for cable. It's not surprising, but now that I think of it, this might be the first service that I reported on on this podcast that's actually shutting down. Kind of thought it would take longer than five months. Anyway... Instead, T-Mobile is partnering with YouTube TV, offering T-Mobile customers $10 off per month, which is actually not a bad deal. That brings the base cost down to about $55 per month, which is still too much if you ask me, but this is coming from a guy who subscribes to Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max and Lord knows what else. So it surely costs more than $55, that's the point. Still, I like that if T-Mobile isn't going to disrupt the TV space, at least it's trying to make it more accessible. That part I dig. And overall, it was a good try by T-Mobile, but the TV industry is just too big to be broken up by a plucky little guy like you. Amazon News, which is Amazon's PR Twitter account, went on a bit of a tear this week going after politicians and other news outlets. In fact, the Twitter account went on such a tear that Amazon employees filed a help desk ticket indicating that the account had been hacked. But it turns out the Twitter account is just run by a bunch of a-holes. The help desk ticket in question was marked as resolved saying, quote, I got details that this is an ongoing PR issue and does not require any technical support. PR leadership is aware of it. In other words, somebody had a really bad day and is probably getting fired. Some of the tweets attacked Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Mark Pocan, specifically citing the whole delivery workers peeing in bottles in order to keep up with deliveries. When Amazon denied the bottle peeing allegations, The Intercept posted several Amazon documents showing that not only were Amazon managers aware of the PP bottles, but also poop bags. So, um, yeah, Amazon, that's a thing. But honestly, as a delivery driver... I could imagine that public bathrooms are probably hard to find, especially during the COVID era. I'm thinking that it'd be a good idea to keep a map of delivery driver-friendly bathroom facilities. If it were me, I definitely would, but all the same, I'd probably keep a few extra bottles and bags around, you know, just in case. And speaking of poop in the bag, Cyberpunk 2077 is getting a new patch soon because, yeah, it kind of needs it. The game has been reported as bug-ridden at best and unplayable at worst, so yeah, a patch is definitely due. But here's the thing. The patch notes for this game start off with a description, quote, Here's a list of the most notable changes coming in this update, which sounds fine, but the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Well, you get the idea. 31 pages when printed out. 31 pages. And these are only the most notable patches in the game. How many not notable patches were made? Guys, I hate to tell you this, but this is the ship of Theseus right here. If you're making 31 pages of updates and patches to a game, is that still the same game? Because I'm not so sure. At this point, shouldn't it be like Cyberpunk 2081 or something? 31 pages, people! No wonder people were pissed off. I know I would be. That's like buying a car and the car company saying, Oh, sure, take the car home now, but we'll ship you the wheels and the steering wheel and the gas tank and the doors in a few months. Oh, and we'll send you the engine and the windshield a few months after that. How anyone could describe the release of this game as anything less than a pooch screw, I just don't know. But hey, at least they're fixing it. 31 pages at a time, but they're still fixing it. Google announced recently that it would be skipping MWC this coming June due to COVID concerns. And while we're on the subject, so will the Benefit of a Doubt podcast due to, you know, 
budget concerns. Anyway, Google is arguably the biggest name to drop out of the show after Sony, Nokia, Ericsson, and Oracle. Google's full statement reads as follows, quote, Following our current COVID-19 travel restrictions and protocols, Google has made the decision not to exhibit at Mobile World Congress this year. We will continue to collaborate closely with the GSMA and support our partners through virtual opportunities. We look forward to this year's activities and seeing you in Barcelona in 2022, which is a great thing. It's because of COVID, right? Google wants everyone to be as safe as possible, and I really think that this is a good and truly noble position to be taking. Except, literally in the same week, Google also announced to its employees that it would be accelerating the process of bringing back employees to work in offices in April. By the way, today is April 4th. Jesus, Google. That means the same company that bowed out of MWC in June due to COVID concerns is bringing back people to work in its offices four days ago. Now, before I go crazy on this, I will admit that the people coming back to work at Google are doing so in a, quote, limited capacity. I will also concede the fact that conferences like MWC are basically disease-ridden cesspools of sneezes and handshakes, but still, Google, it's the same week. By the way, as of September, employees who want to remain remote for more than 14 days per year will have to formally apply under the most exceptional circumstances. Um, how about not wanting to die? Is that exceptional enough? Now, I know the vaccine is getting out there, and I'm one shot in myself. So I know that by September, much of this will be in the rearview mirror, or at least we hope. But you'll recall also last year that in October was when cases started to skyrocket again because people stopped hanging around outside. So I understand where Google is coming from, except the bowing out of MWC. I don't get that at all. I think that's mostly a crock. But I also think that this is a little short-sighted. I'm not sure we're at the point where you can draw a line in the sand just yet. Saying on the Google bandwagon, this is a bit of a rumor, but it comes to us from 9to5Google, so seems fairly reliable. It seems Google may be developing its own silicon to power its Google Pixel phones due out this fall. The chips, dubbed Whitechapel, are being developed alongside Samsung Semiconductor, aka the company that makes Exynos chips. That's an interesting choice, for sure. It seems Google really wants to give Qualcomm the finger by not only developing its own chips, but by developing them with one of Qualcomm's biggest rivals. I can't say I'm terribly excited by the prospect of Pixel phones being powered by the same folks who build Exynos chips, but again, it is a choice. It's fairly obvious that Google wants to control its own pipeline, just like Apple does, and with good reason. Apple is able to make some remarkable achievements by way of controlling everything that goes inside its phones. It's natural that Google wants a piece of that pie, too. But what worries me here is Google's tendency to kill off projects that don't pay off, you know, like right away. How long will the Whitechapel experiment last? As long as Soli, perhaps? As long as Stadia, perhaps? And those are just two of dozens of examples from the past couple of years. Yeah, that's not awesome. Aside from the fact that this will be first-gen hardware, it's a really good reason to maybe skip the Pixel 6, which is probably exactly what will get Google to kill the project. Overall, it's just awesome. And speaking of awesome, Xiaomi has a slew of announcements this week, starting with a trio of phones topped by the Xiaomi Mi 11 Ultra. 
It's not exactly being subtle about the fact that it's going up against Samsung in this arena, for sure. And to do that, it's using an enormous camera bump to hold a 50 megapixel main sensor, a 48 megapixel ultra wide lens, and a 48 megapixel 5x optical periscope lens. By contrast, the 10x optical sensor on the Galaxy Ultra is a 10 megapixel sensor. Just saying. It's not nothing. The camera bump on the Mi 11 Ultra is so large that it has a screen of its own embedded in it, which helps with taking selfies and can be used for things like Spotify controls. The phone also has a Snapdragon 888 processor, 12GB of RAM, 512GB of storage, a 6.81-inch AMOLED WQHD Plus screen with 120Hz refresh rate, and say that five times real fast. So yeah, it's pretty ultra. Plus, with 67 watts of charging, you can charge the 5,000mAh battery from zero to full in 36 minutes. That's almost too fast. Make sure you keep a fire extinguisher around. I'm just saying. Needless to say, this phone just keeps on going, and I'd love to check it out, but alas, my passport says United States. Still, mad respect for Xiaomi, and by the way, we're not done with Xiaomi just yet. Remember the Mi Mix series of phones? Xiaomi has resurrected the brand to introduce its first foldable device, the Mi Mix Fold. This phone is also very similar to the Samsung Galaxy Fold in that it's an inner folding screen with a phone-sized screen on the outside. Naturally, you get a Snapdragon 888 processor, 12 or 16 gigabytes of RAM, and 256 or 512 gigabytes of storage. The camera system is very interesting in that Xiaomi is using a air quotes, liquid lens technology in its camera, which allows the phone to focus on something just three centimeters away from the lens and can also zoom out to a 3x optical zoom or 30x hybrid zoom. And that to me is even more interesting than the folding screen, but what do I know? Pricing looks to start around 9,999 yuan, which is just around $1,500 US, but of course it'll be a China exclusive, at least at first. News came out this week that Volkswagen was going to rebrand as Volkswagen in America due to its upcoming electronic vehicle. And I know what you're thinking, ha ha ha, funny, April Fool's. But no, the news came out on Monday, March 28th, and everyone was like, are you serious? And then Volkswagen doubled down on it saying, oh yeah, we're totally going to do that. And everyone was like, this isn't an April Fool's thing? And Volkswagen was like, no, totally not. And then April 1st rolled around and they're all like, okay, yeah, it was an April Fool's thing. And this gave license for everyone to get all out of sorts saying, hey everyone, don't do April Fool's stuff, all right? Look what happened to Volkswagen. And everyone got up on their high horses about how brands shouldn't pull April Fool's pranks and blah, 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 blah. Personally, my stance is this. Do April Fool's stuff. Don't do April Fool's stuff. It's fine either way. Sometimes it's clever and fun. Most of the time, a vast majority of the time, it's stupid. Like the Volkswagen thing. If it had come out on April 1st, which was obviously the intention, then it would have been amusing. Slightly. But some stupid intern released a press release early, and instead of saying, Oh, whoopsie doodle, our bad, Volkswagen committed to the bit, hardcore. And while on some level I can respect that, it was also kind of dumb, and I feel bad for the intern that probably got fired over it. Sorry, intern. Good luck in college. 
But then we have an example of an April Fool's Day prank done 100% right, because, and finally, MKBHD released a video review of a new Mac, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything here because it's revealed in the first few seconds anyway, but if you want to go ahead and skip ahead 15 seconds, now would be a good time to do that. But instead of the usual brushed aluminum and HD screen on a Mac, we got something decidedly more fluffy and adorable. Mac, you see, is Marquez Brownlee's dog, and he's adorable. And speaking of committing to the bit, Marquez described the dog as he would a piece of tack. Now, I'm not going to give that part away because it's actually hilarious and very well done, so go watch the video because you really should. But I submit to you and to everyone else that if MKBHD had listened to all the naysayers out there begging people not to do April Fool stuff, then this adorable and funny video would never have been made. So to all you tech journalists who can't take a joke, lighten up. Sure, most of them are stupid. In fact, most of them are really stupid. But some of them are real streaks of genius and genuinely funny. So leave the tradition alone, you misers. Now, get off my lawn. Backend, application, API. Bugs, attachment, DevOps, backend, frameworks, backward compiler, oriented, natural language, software, blue text editor, book margin, Boolean web server. Welcome to Tech Yeah! This week on Tech Yeah, we have a pair of cases for the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra from our friends at Poetic. Now, one way that Poetic really stands out from a lot of the competition is the 360-degree protection that Poetic provides because Poetic cases come with a back and a front that goes over the screen. It's like a case and screen protector built into one. The screen protector is plastic and a bit of a fingerprint magnet, so you need to clean it very carefully before putting the case on. But once it's on, the case seals shut super tight so that nothing is getting in there. Both cases even have a power port cover over the USB-C port to provide a little extra protection. The two cases I got are the Guardian and the Revolution. Both cases have the front and back on them. The Guardian has a mostly clear back plate so that you can see just how black that black Samsung Galaxy S21 is. The Revolution has a solid gray back plate with a kickstand that pops out. The kickstand works in both portrait and landscape orientations, which is really nice. I'm using the Revolution as we speak specifically for that kickstand. The cases are made of a rubberized material that provides excellent impact protection, and the screen protector provides scratch resistance as well. It's kind of like the best of both worlds. Buttons are still very responsive, even with this thick case on it, and the fingerprint sensor still works, even though it's a lot more finicky with the case on than when it's off. The same goes for wireless charging. It still works, but it's a little more position sensitive. The design of both cases have a neat, futuristic look to them that complements the Galaxy Ultra quite nicely. I'll be using the Revolution case for the near future anyway, and as always, I put links in the show notes and on benefitofadow.com. So if you pick one up, I'll get a little cut at no extra cost to you, and you'll have my thanks. But for now, let's get back to the show. The tale of foldables is still being told. Make no mistake, we are at its bare infancy of what is possible 
with foldables. And so far, the tale has revolved around the mobile space. Huawei, Samsung, and most recently Xiaomi have all crowded into this space. Another space has remained less populated, the laptop space. And today, we're going to talk about one of the only entries in that space, the Lenovo ThinkPad X1 Fold. And just like its name suggests, this is the world's first folding screen laptop. And dear listener, this is a damn fun machine to use. Most of the time. Lenovo is no stranger to playing on the fringes of the tech space. The Lenovo Clock is a desk clock with Google Assistant built in. The Lenovo Jedi Challenges is a VR headset designed specifically for Star Wars lightsaber battles. Lenovo is no stranger to taking wild ideas and actually making them into products. The Lenovo ThinkPad X1 Fold seems relatively tame by comparison. I mean, it's just a folding screen laptop. That's not crazy. Or is it? When you look at the hardware of the X1 Fold, you start to notice little details that would be exceptionally easy to overlook, from the leather backplate that slides along the back of the laptop when you open it and close it, from the keyboard that comes with the laptop that magnetically locks into place on the screen and perfectly fills the unavoidable gap between the closed screens, from the placement of the USB-C ports, even though that there are only two of them. From the fact that Lenovo not only allows you, but encourages you to use a stylus with this screen. Samsung places warnings on the box and on the screen protector, warning against using a stylus. Lenovo will sell you a pen to do it. Lenovo has spent a couple of years showing off the design of its laptop, including showing up at CES with disassembled versions of the laptop, letting people poke and prod at it, and rightly so, because with one notable exception, the hardware in this laptop is simply top-notch. So let's take a tour. When the laptop is closed, it resembles a leather-bound novel. My review unit came with a keyboard and pen accessory, and the keyboard slots nicely into the fold gap that would otherwise be present. An elastic loop on the keyboard holds the pen. It's not the most elegant solution, but given the girth of the pen, there really wasn't any way to do it, so it's forgivable. And in the weeks since I've been using the laptop, the elastic has held up beautifully. So despite its slightly chintzy look, at least it's durable. When you open the laptop, you know, like a laptop, the keyboard is already locked into place magnetically and ready to go. The half of the screen that's exposed has about a half-inch bezel around it with a rubberized grippy material. The webcam sits on the right side. Your power button and volume rocker sit in the front of the laptop, and there's a USB Type-C port on the left and one more on the top. Take off the keyboard and pen, and this is where the laptop reaches its full potential. The keyboard and pen both connect to the laptop via Bluetooth, and the laptop opens up to a full 13-inch screen. A kickstand built into the leather exterior kicks out and stands the screen up on end, and suddenly you've gone from a Michael Crichton novel to a full-size laptop. That's an awesome transition. When the laptop is open to its full screen size, only one of the two aforementioned USB-C ports remains accessible. The other one is on the bottom of the display and therefore on the table, unless you use an awesome laptop stand like the one from Roost, link in the show notes, which will be a subject on the podcast in the not-too-distant future. Also, since there's only one USB-C port, you'll probably want to grab a Hutu USB hub, link in the show notes, which has already been on the YouTube channel and will be coming soon to a podcast near you. 
The screen on the laptop is beautiful and bright, but I'd like it to get a lot brighter. Especially when working outside, the 300 nits of brightness it manages is really not enough, especially since having the laptop at max brightness is A, a battery killer, and B, basically necessary. Turning the brightness down helps, for sure, as far as battery life is concerned, but it gets uncomfortable to read and do a lot of work. The speakers are decent, not amazing. They get decently loud, not the loudest I've ever heard, but bass is basically non-existent. It's a little disappointing, but I've never been blown away by laptop speakers, so why start now? So let's move on to the pen. I'll delve more into the pen in the software section, ironically, but I'll say about the pen for now is that it's a good thickness and weight and it feels about as good to write as the Apple Pencil does on an iPad. It uses Wacom protocols for tilt and pressure sensitivity, which is nice. If you're an artist, I imagine you would have a lot more uses for this pen than I, and we'll talk about more use cases for that in a bit. But there's one piece of the hardware that we need to talk about, and that's the keyboard. Remembering how I feel that keyboards are a close second, if not the most important part of a laptop, you can imagine I have some feelings on this. Basically, the keyboard, it's just okay. The keys themselves are nice, with really nice travel, and if not for other things, I would love to use this keyboard all the time. Given the size of the keyboard, some compromises had to be made, I'm just not sure that Lenovo made the right compromises. The keyboard for the X1 Fold is almost the same size as the bridge keyboard I've been using for almost a year now. Granted, this keyboard is about half the thickness, so that's a major consideration. Also, this keyboard has a trackpad, which is also a consideration. All that being said, the layout of this keyboard is rough. From the enter key I kept hitting when trying to use an apostrophe to the function key I pretty much always hate on any keyboard, frankly Lenovo could have done a better job here. Again, length and width, the Lenovo and the bridge keyboards are basically the same size, so I really wish the two of them would get together for version 2.0. The layout takes a lot of getting used to, and you can get used to it, I eventually did. The keyboard also has no grip on the bottom of it, so it has a tendency to slide around on a smooth table. I solved that problem with a sheet of paper towel, but honestly, you shouldn't have to. The trackpad on the keyboard is laughably small and a little janky, but mostly, it's just too small. It's so small that Lenovo should have thought long and hard about just leaving it out. You have a touchscreen and a pen for that reason. So if there's a weak point to the hardware, it's the keyboard, no question at all. And that sucks, because it just feels like these are avoidable mistakes. One unavoidable mistake was in the other core part of the laptop experience, the software, a.k.a. Windows 10. Windows is a nice operating system when you're working from a traditional form factor, but when you're not, and this is confirmed by every attempt to shoehorn Windows onto something other than a laptop or a PC, the software just falls apart. On something like the X1 Fold, it's downright maddening because this device is designed to change up its form factor and Windows really does not like that. Sometimes you'll open the laptop with the keyboard in place and Windows goes full screen. Sometimes you'll open the full screen and set it down in landscape and Windows insists on booting up and staying in portrait. Sometimes you open the laptop, take off the keyboard, and only half the screen lights up. Sometimes that half of the screen is still in the middle, bisected by the crease, and you've got a tiny screen on a full-size laptop. In a word, when the laptop works, it's beautiful. 
I love Windows and its ability to snap Windows to one side and the other, stuff like that. Buttons on Windows have gotten large enough that my sausage fingers can tap the X to close a window or a tab. Windows still has zero idea on when to bring off a virtual keyboard. Like, sometimes it comes up by itself, other times you have to manually trigger it. I mean, Microsoft, just look at the damn iPad. This is not hard. It doesn't have to be hard. Another problem that Windows has is in the form of the pen. And I've said this as long as I've been reviewing Windows tablets that come with pens or Windows tablets that have pens because no tablets come with pens because God forbid. But anyway, Windows needs to figure out how to translate a pen input to replace a mouse input because Windows still has no idea what it's doing in this regard. Yes, the pen has buttons, but those buttons don't work in an intuitive way. And you can reprogram them, but you can't reprogram them to work in an intuitive way. Windows, you have a lot of work to do here. Maybe ask Lenovo how to do it, because Lenovo seems to have a decent idea. On the performance end, I found the laptop to be overall sluggish when completing anything more than working in Google Docs and honestly sometimes when working in Google Docs. Even things like YouTube playback could get stuttery at times, though that was relatively rare. This is not going to be a powerhouse, so don't expect it to be. Speaking of which, we should mention the specifications. This is an Intel Core i5 Lakefield processor with 8GB of RAM and 256GB of onboard storage. As I mentioned, there's no expandability here, and 256GB is... let's just say it's tight. But overall, the performance on doing most things is kind of laggy. It actually reminded me of a duet at times, that problem with inertia that I noted on that device. That's disappointing, and I wonder how much of that was because of the form factor and the modifications that had to be made, either because of Lenovo software or modifications to the OS to make it run with this hardware. What I long for is Windows 10X. That's Microsoft's operating system that's supposed to be flexible and lightweight enough to work with multiple screens and devices like the Surface Neo that was introduced pre-pandemic but hasn't been mentioned since. In fact, Microsoft said that Windows 10X would not come out on a device in 2020. Well, we're a quarter of the way into 2021, so maybe there's hope for an X1 Fold 2 with an operating system actually designed for it? We can hope. As for battery life, it's not great. I got around four or five hours on a charge in a single day. Battery life for me is hard to gauge because I have a very <clears throat> non-linear workflow. I'll be honest, I'm not the kind of person who's gonna sit down at a desk and work for eight hours. I get distracted by Twitter or videos or helping kids with the homework or piles of dishes calling my name. You get the idea. Bottom line, I love working at home, but I probably shouldn't work from home. What was I saying? Oh right, distractions. Wait, no, 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 battery life, that's it. Honestly, I'm not surprised by the battery life. I never really expected this to be a champ, except when you consider that this laptop is designed to be even more on the go than a normal laptop. But it's also designed with, what, a third of the body thickness once you take out that screen? So yeah, that's kind of where it is. Now, with this device, I don't think I could really do a review without explaining just how I would use this laptop. By day, I'm a writer, so most of my work is done online and pretty much anywhere I feel like doing it. 
In the case of the ThinkPad X1 Fold, it was often at my kitchen table or on my couch. I would sit at the kitchen table for hours writing an article or researching whatever I had to work on, but whenever I had the opportunity, I headed over to the couch to proofread or make edits or read a particularly long document or article. That's where the versatility of this laptop really shines. I regret that 2020 has kept me home so much without the ability to travel to a coffee shop or a gym where I could settle down and pound out some work on it. I think that would give me a similar perspective, but I also think that if I did more than I could simulate here on my kitchen table, I might have gotten a deeper appreciation for everything that this laptop brings. And before I go any further, I should point out that the ThinkPad X1 Fold is 100% a laptop and not a tablet. I mean, it can be if that's your thing, but this is designed for productivity and use of all three of the components, the screen, the keyboard, and the pen. You know how two-in-ones are popular because they can be a laptop or a tablet. It's kind of the same thing here, but I never really considered the ThinkPad a tablet, which is kind of ironic. Technically it is, I'll grant you that. But if you're looking to buy a tablet, you're probably better off with an iPad and a Zag keyboard. That way you'll get a much better tablet slash laptop experience. The ThinkPad Fold is for people who want a laptop 80% of the time with maybe the occasional tablet experience. It's just too unwieldy to be used as a tablet full time. So then why the Fold? That doesn't make sense, you might be thinking, except it does because of the portability and versatility that comes along with the compact nature of a laptop in its smaller configuration. The ThinkPad Fold is a laptop that you can toss into a bag or even a purse and go about your day. You can ride with it on the train, prop it up on the arm of a chair, or when you have a desk, you can open it up fully and stretch out. I don't think Lenovo designed this with a tablet form factor in mind. I think Lenovo designed this with a laptop form factor in mind and by converting it to a full laptop when you could. It's not that you can't use it as a tablet, but I'm not so sure a tablet is this laptop's spirit animal. So where does that leave us? Is this the coolest laptop I've ever used? Yes, unquestionably. This is the kind of laptop I take to people's houses just to show them. Is this the best laptop I've ever used? No way in hell! I've got two other laptops here that I would actually rather use. I struggle to get even 50% of my job done on this thing. I'm sorry, Lenovo, but that's the truth. There's very little work product that I would trust with this laptop beyond Google Docs. So the $2,500 price tag seems a bit on the steep side for what amounts to... I hate to say it, but a glorified netbook with a really neat trick up its sleeve. And that sounds harsh, but for as much as this laptop really chugs along, it's not a completely unfair comparison either. Maybe if this laptop had Windows 10X on it, the story would be different. Maybe if the world were more open, this would make more sense. Maybe a Generation 2 ThinkPad will make more sense. So what is this laptop and who is it for? I'm going to answer the second question first. This laptop is for nerds and futurists and or people who have a lot of disposable income. It's probably for artists, also with a lot of disposable income. It's for people who travel a lot but who also have a lot of disposable income. I think you can see the pattern here. Whoever buys this laptop will overpay for an experience that will absolutely 100% be worth it for them. And if you're salivating right now at the end of this review and you have a lot of disposable income, this laptop is for you. As for what it is, well, the ThinkPad X1 Fold is Lenovo once again playing in the space with an outrageous and awesome design and a new take on a class of devices that has grown stale. That is its biggest asset. 
But the problem with trailblazers is they're the ones that get tired first because of hacking their way through the jungle. The ThinkPad Fold is one giant machete, paving the way for the wagon trail behind it. I sincerely hope that this is not the last folding screen laptop that I ever see. I sincerely hope that this is not the last folding Lenovo laptop that we see, because this device is the future. And I'm insanely happy that Lenovo has the courage to show it to us. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. If you're celebrating, I hope you had a very nice Easter Sunday. And if not, I hope you had a very nice Sunday anyway. I'd like to thank Lenovo for the review device of the ThinkPad X1 Fold. That one is going to hurt to send back. And by the way, as always, Lenovo had no editorial oversight in this review. These are my words. I'd like to thank co-producer Cliff for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.